Although Nan Shepard wrote The Living Mountain, her book on the landscape of the Cairngorms, in 1944, it soon received a rejection letter and was set aside for more than 30 years before it was finally published. Many more years passed before it began to be appreciated fully, and it wasn't until about ten past six on Monday, November 16th, 2020, that Paddy Woodworth added The Living Mountain to our naturalist bookshelf. It would be a shame to come upon the concluding paragraphs of Nan Shepard's brief, ungovernable masterpiece, The Living Mountain, before you have savoured and digested everything that has gone before. I say this because the extraordinary final statements she makes can only be supported by the intricate yet deeply grounded structure that she builds in the preceding chapters. And that's why I won't quote her conclusions here. It would be rather like landing by helicopter on the top of Everest instead of climbing it from sea level. Or thinking, maybe, that you've heard Beethoven's Ninth Symphony by listening only to its final climactic gallop. Teachers of meditation sometimes suggest that we should sit like a mountain to cope with our turbulent inner weather. Nan Shepherd doesn't sit. She walks though she often pauses. She also, quite disconcertingly, sometimes lies down and goes to sleep, on the edge of a precipice in the middle of the day, for example. Her descriptions of the joy, at once sensual and serene, of waking on the mountainside, whether in sunlight or moonlight, are one of this book's many unique pleasures. The Living Mountain has only been recently recognised as a classic, championed by another great celebrator of wild landscapes, Robert McFarlane, who introduced a new edition some years back. Shepherd herself is an enigma from the last century. She died in her native Deeside in 1981, almost five decades after three precocious novels in quick succession gave her brief moments of international literary success. The Living Mountain is her last book, and even it was finished during the Second World War. Almost total silence followed. The manuscript, she tells us in a late foreword, lay in a drawer for many years. Now an old woman, she wrote in 1977, I realised that the tale of my traffic of love with a mountain is as valid today as it was in 1945. Her traffic of love takes place entirely in the Cairngorms, source of her beloved River Dee. She treats this massive range as a single mountain with multiple peaks. She tells a story of lifelong discovery, lifelong wonder. However often I walk on them, these hills hold astonishment for me, she says. The whole wild enchantment, like a work of art, is perpetually new when one returns to it. As a young woman, she shared the classic mountaineer's obsession with the tang of heights, to be lifted as on a mighty shelf above the world. So she used to head doggedly for the summits on every excursion. But she gradually found that the mountain gives itself most completely when I have no destination, when I reach nowhere in particular, 
but have gone out merely to be with the mountain, as one visits a friend, with no intention but to be with him. Shepherd knows her natural sciences very well, but she writes like a poet. Enraptured by landscapes, plants and animals, she has seen a thousand times, yet never in quite the same way. She's exceptionally sensitive to tones of colour and intensities of scent that most of us might miss. The varied greens in clouds, the aromatic ferment of cut spruce. She pays keen attention to the myriad forms taken by the freezing of running water. If Inwits have many names for snow, Shepherd conjures up a score of vivid images for frost and ice. And she's visceral in her responses to nature. Watching swifts fly in convolutions of delight, as she says, makes her laugh aloud. A sensation of release she compares to dancing for a long time. Scientific knowledge, she says, in an insight that all good nature writers share, does not dispel mystery. And she continues, The more one learns of the intricate interplay of soil, altitude, weather, and the living tissues of plant and insect, the more the mystery deepens. She's equally observant of the diverse characters of the people of the mountains. She is as unblinkingly aware of their hardships as she is admiring of their resilience and their wit. And she knows full well that the love of mountains can lure even the best mountaineers to lonely and terrible deaths. That the mountain can become, as she says, a monstrous place. And yet she walks on. Her final three chapters, sleep, the senses, and finally, being, take us way up into the high, rarefied territory I mentioned at the outset. Here, her body and her mind seamlessly engage with the very stuff of the mountain in an ecstasy that seems both erotic and chaste. Very few people can write about this kind of experience without making our toes curl. But if you've hiked with Shepherd through the lower slopes of this book, you are likely to trust her final soaring vision. And you may feel moved, perhaps, to set out on your own intimate encounter with a living mountain, even if it's only your local hill. Paddy Woodworth there on Nan Shepherd's The Living Mountain, our latest addition to the Naturalist Bookshelf. That book is available on its own and in a compilation with three of Shepherd's novels as The Grampian Quartet, which is published by Canongate.